Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. here today with the author and living historian Ruth Goodman. She's written several excellent books that we'll be talking about today, including The Domestic Revolution, How to Be a Tudor, and How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England. She is basically the doyen of British living history. So, without further ado, Ruth, welcome to the show. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ruth, whereabouts are you? Wales, it's marvellous. <laughs> Wales, okay. I can hear, I can hear my, my Welsh listeners cheering in the background. Yay! Excellent. <laughs> Any particular bit of Wales? I'm not telling you that. You might come here. <laughs> it's lovely without any visitors. It's gorgeous. <laughs> All right, you heard, you heard that here, people. Stay the hell out of Wales. It's Ruth's. <laughs> Okay. Um, now, I, uh, when I invited you onto the show, I sent you some questions. Uh, I hadn't read the Domestic Revolution yet, and um, now I have, and I want to kind of deviate from the script already. Good, because and I read your questions and completely forgot them. Excellent. Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so. The Domestic Revolution is about how Britain shifted from burning mostly wood to burning mostly coal. And as far as I can tell from the book, they went from a system that was basically clean and safe-ish and, you know, kind of relatively low, low maintenance to something that was expensive and difficult and dirty. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, okay. basically it is. So could you tell us what happened? We just ran out of wood. They ran out of space. There are too many of us. Um, okay. It seems to have happened very quickly, and it happened because of the growth of London. London just exploded during the late Tudor period. I mean, if you look at Queen Elizabeth's reign, you know, the, the, the capital more than doubles. It very nearly quadruples in size during one Queen's reign. I mean, that if you get That's your head huge. around that, it's enormous, isn't it? It's no yeah. wonder that it then struggled to provide everything it needed for its citizens. And weirdly, it did okay on food. Food supplies, not a problem. But fuel very quickly did become a problem. They just couldn't get enough wood in. Uh, So prices were rocketing and people therefore had to find an alternative. So they were pushed into it by a population explosion in one place. Ah, okay. And now, I've always sort of technically known that back in the Middle Ages people washed their clothes with wood ash and even yeah. dung, right? Yeah. Which never made any sense to me until I read your book, which explains it perfectly, but it's not my job to explain these things. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I um, So could you please explain how you can use wood ash to clean your clothes? Well, wood ash actually contains a really useful chemical. It was known in the past as potash. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of an alkali, which you can leach out of the wood ash by pouring water through it. Any wood ash will do. Uh, you burn it, you've got the ash left. If you then use that wood ash, either straight or you leach the chemical out with water, 
you've got something which will cut grease and kill bacteria. It's free in every household that was burning wood. Everybody had access to it. And you've got both your sterilization and your grease removal all in one chemical. It's really useful. So in a very simple way, if you're out in the woods and you have a fry up over a small fire, when you've finished eating your lovely bacon, you've got a greasy frying pan. The easiest oh, way Ruth, to... You have I, I think you disappeared for a second. Yeah, no, you're back again. Oh, Please, back sorry. <laughs> so anyway, there you are, yeah. out in the woods with your greasy yeah. frying pan. You've eaten your bacon. Now, the way to clean that frying pan is to take a handful of ash from the edge of the fire, throw it into the pan, pop your pan on for a second so that it's just sort of warm or warm through, then a handful of grass, a splash of water, rub round, rinse. Done. It, the, the wood ash has combined with the fat in your pan to make its own soap. So you've that is, that is so much easier than using fairy liquid in a Isn't street, it? As, as I have done. It doesn't exactly. work very well. Exactly. The wood ash is actually better. It's also much safer for the environment and, by, you know, biodegradable, blah, 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 blah. Sure. Okay. Um, and so dung? Dung? Well, weirdly, dung also contains, it's not as good as wood ash, but dung and urine also have chemicals within them that can be used for cleaning. Now, you don't use the dung straight. You know, that would be a bit ridiculous. Rubbing poo on your clothes, not a no, good plan. No, <laughs> not a good plan. But if you took some animal dung, and actually cow's particularly good if you can get it, um, and you pop it in a bucket with a load of water, leave it overnight, and then use the water the next day. And the water will have leached the appropriate chemicals into it. So you've got a sort of relatively clear-looking liquid. And that's what you're going to rinse your clothes in. And again, it acts as a, a, a mild bacterial, antibacterial agent, but also as a mild way of shifting grease, you know, that combines with grease. Um, if you do it with urine, you really want to let it ferment. Um, so you just pee in a pot and you leave it somewhere outside because it's so smelly and unpleasant. <laughs> outside with the lid on, you just leave it for three weeks. And in that three weeks, the urine ferments and changes and becomes ammonia. Well, you know, we all use ammonia bleach around the house. Right. That's a, a, you know, it's still a standard thing. These days they synthesize the ammonia, um, which to me seems the most dreadful, dreadful waste. I mean, for goodness sake, we've got urine going to spare, you know. How hard could it be to collect it and put it in a tank somewhere? <laughs> I mean, how hard would that really be? <laughs> but, you know, ammonia, again, once it's a bleach. And like all bleaches, it smells of bleach. Um, and it behaves like bleach. It does all the jobs that bleach will do. So for particularly your white whites, it's a brilliant way of getting things really clean. Okay, and you've actually done all this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It works. Okay. I mean, it really yeah. works. I mean, it works, to my mind, at least as well, um, in some ways better than modern products. Okay, because there's, there's a thing in your, in your book, uh, Domestic Revolution, where you mention near the beginning that you've changed the way you do your laundry at home mm. based on what you do in practice. Mm. And then you talk about historical laundry, uh, but you don't actually tell us at the end of the book when you're discussing historical laundry practices what you actually do at home. Oh, so at can, home. I, can well, I ask I'm, you what you do at home? I am very lazy. I love washing machines. Yes. I think the washing <laughs> machine is one of the greatest inventions of all time. And mm -hmm. I would rank it up there for the liberation of women with the contraceptive pill. Um, so I do use a washing machine. I just don't put any product in it. I run it on okay. water. That's it. Unless okay. I've got something really, really greasy. 
you know, like if you've been making butter and your cloth is absolutely covered in it or I don't know what else people okay. do to get really greasy. Then I might use a little bit of soap or wood ash, depending on what I've got hanging around, um, to give it a quick soak. But so other than that, the washing machine how, does it all just with water. So how would you use wood ash in a washing machine? I would either pre-soak a clothes in a bucket or mm-hmm. you could just pour a little bit in with the, with the um, you know, like you do a detergent. But I wouldn't want to do that too often because uh, I don't know, I, I don't have the skill of washing machines. I don't know how many exposed bits of gubbins they've got that the liquid might get in contact with because it is a highly active chemical and you would need to mm. be really sure that your active chemical wasn't going to react with some component in your washing machine. So I would do it separately. So I'd do it, soak in the lye and then just chuck it in for water washing in the machine. Okay. Wow. Well, you heard it here. First <laughs> chats. You don't need all of these fancy detergents. No, you they tell really you to put in. don't. You really, really don't. It's quite shocking, I think. We've just been sort of groomed into it all of our lives. So were our parents. So were our grandparents. You know, it's now traditional to rely on a bottle of stuff. And we believe in right. it like a sort of religious faith. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, for a long time, um, we've been using just household vinegar as water softener in the washing machine, not using like, con- you, know, you get a conditioner because yeah. the soap ruins the clothes and makes them all yeah. stiff and horrible. You have conditioner to make them like soft yeah. again. Yeah, right? well, you so, think if you don't use any soap in the first place. You don't need any conditioner. You don't need any conditioner. <laughs> 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 well, that, that just makes sense. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and I understand that uh, you've, you've been involved in things like recreating the uh, ovens that were in the, um, the Mary Rose yep. and sort of cooking on reconstructions of these ovens. Yeah. So that, these are wood-fired, correct? Yeah, they're wood-fired. Okay. So what is that like? Oh, it's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> I know I'm a bit mad. I've also been lucky enough to find not just recreations, but original ovens. Um, and that's, that's really special. The ovens at Haddon Hall up in Derbyshire had mm-hmm. not been fired since at least 1700, when the house was shut up. Um, and uh, I managed to persuade the current owner <laughs> to take... To let the, you have a go. Yeah, to take the light, electric light out, which was in there to show people inside of the oven so we took that out and that's it then I fired them I've cooked in them dozens of times since dozens and dozens of times they're really good ovens they're beautiful and you can they're very accurate you know there's a pair of them and they they, they were pastry ovens rather than for baking bread they were pastry for all the posh cakes and things so controllable they just and the food comes out delicious so how do you control the temperature in a wood-fired oven you basically have to understand fire um and it's sort of something you can learn with experience. I mean, people, if somebody's with you, they can talk you through it a bit. But it is, it is about a sort of sensual understanding of fire, of seeing the way it looks, of the way it sounds, the sorts of smells that come off it. It's quite subtle in some ways. So a really well-fired traditional oven, you should get sort of like a plume. You know, like the mushroom cloud with the nuclear holocaust mushroom cloud, yeah? That's yep. the shape of fire you're trying to make so that it comes up in a sort of stalk, hits the roof, mushrooms out and coils round the brickwork. So the actual flame is licking around, almost right down to the bottom. 
and then the exhaust gases then get hauled back into the centre of the conflagration and reburned. So you get very, very little in the way of smoke and, and very high uh, efficiency in turning the wood into, into energy. Um, and you can see that happening. And the, the shapes that the flames make at different temperatures also change. So if you're dealing with wood, I don't really know how to describe it in words. I call it dragon fire. It's like sort of when, they take, when the flames take on a sort of arabesque shape, a bit like I imagine dragons would breathe. <laughs> you, I know it's reached a particular temperature. Likewise, you can feel the sphere of heat coming out of the door. So if you put your hand near, there'll be a point at which you don't want to go any nearer. And it'll be quite distinct horizon, like this side of it, cool enough, I'm quite happy. A little bit, oh, ow. <laughs> and yeah. you can sort of like move your hand around and you'll get a sort of a shape of where it becomes too hot. And that's another indicator because as the space heats, it pushes heat out in different ways. So if you've got a sort of like a, a sort of a straight up and down chimney of heat, it's not ready yet. Um, if you've got a, a shape of heat that is beginning to be more like a sort of a balloon shape coming out and encompasses and goes right down to the bottom of the opening, now you're at bread heat. So it's, it's a really physical way of understanding the temperature. You're looking at it, you're listening to the crackle and the noise, because that also changes as the fire changes temperature. Um, and often you find when you're using, it varies between ovens, but the actual stone and brick starts to smell different. So if you're right. using one oven, often you would also get that smell to back up your other sensory guides. So... It's not something you can just switch on and like read a dial. <laughs> so it is something you have to sort of learn by doing. Jeanette, I've I've experienced this many times in woodworks. I used to be an antiques restorer, and problems which seem like really difficult and complicated to somebody used to like modern machine woodwork. Mm. When you watch somebody who was apprenticed forty years ago and has just been doing this mm. their whole lives. They will do it in a few seconds with a couple of super basic tools. Yeah. And you, they have this sort of nuanced control over what they're doing, but just with really, to a modern eye, primitive equipment. Yeah. Um, but but you, it's, it's like, you know, we used to like turning dials on an oven and we can get it to 275 degrees precisely or whatever. Um, but, you know, with the, I imagine someone who's, work their whole lives with a, a wood-fired oven, well, you know, if, if they need a particular heat, they may not have a number for it, but they know exactly how yeah. hot the oven you is. Do. You relative really, to the really pie. do. Yeah. You absolutely do. And what you told you, you say it's hot enough for cake or hot enough for pastry or hot enough for bread. You know, that's how you describe it to yeah. other people. And you see those words in some of the period sources too. It's often, you know, that sort of very descriptive way of saying how you should cook something or what a fire should be doing. And yeah, you do develop this. And you, I think you have to be alive to it. I think a lot of modern people um, often take a very long time to make that because they're not sort of aware that that is learning, that that experience, right. they're not very good at taking notice of what their senses are telling them because they're not trained to take notice of what their senses are telling them. And I find if I'm teaching somebody, um, some people find that, leap easy and some people find that leap almost impossible um it, it is a different way of approaching the world a very physical way of approaching the world yeah and it's if you don't mind my saying it's a very martial artist way of approaching the world is it really absolutely i mean martial arts are all about that 
Okay, the absolute best way to learn uh, a technique like a joint lock, for example, is to have the teacher do it to you. Right. Right, and you feel it, and you learn to feel where the energy is going, where the forces are being applied, exactly how that's connecting your, you know, your elbow is locked up to your shoulder, and that's turning your spine, which is locking up your hip, and your weight's in the wrong place because they've just nudged you gently onto that foot so you can't move it to get it out of the way. And there's all these little nuances, a thousand little details that make the difference between a beginner trying to do the lock and someone who's really good at it, just putting it on with almost no force. Yeah. But when you learn to feel it, you get that that sense of, mm. okay, that feeling that I had in me, I now have to create in them. And yeah, it's, it's, it's the, once you've learned how to learn that way, it is by far I the find easiest that really way to learn martial arts. It's, it's something I've sort of suspected for a while because I did a lot of dance when I was young. Um, mm-hmm. And I find the martial arts stuff that I've encountered very interesting from a dance point of view. Um, oh, sure. And, and I know what you mean about physical learning in that, because dance you can only learn by doing, you, you, you know. <laughs> right. You can yeah, learn sure. by, but you have to learn how to learn by watching somebody else do as well as doing right. it yourself. Um, and it's about learning to feel each little bit of you. A good dancer is somebody who knows exactly where each muscle is at any moment. And yeah. again, many people who don't have that sort of training really struggle with knowing where is my hand. <laughs> sure. Am I, you know, am I pressing it on this edge of the side or that edge of the side? You know, that sort of understanding of your own body is, is very important in dance. And I've often wondered about that because, I mean, I know in the period that we're both interested, there seems to be quite a lot of crossover between dance and martial arts. Oh, sure. It's, it's movement. And, yeah, exactly. And the, the way the way I teach students to to learn this, because again, most of my students um, they come from a totally non physical background. They're computer programmers or lorry drivers or whatever, and they're right, not yeah. they're not dancers yeah. who come in. Or um, yeah. I mean, I, I do get some dancers, but generally speaking, they don't have any kind of physical, physical background, yeah. right? Um, the the mirror neurons in your brain are what make it enjoyable for people to watch things like sport because you're, it's how children learn to walk. walk. It's by copying their, you know, copying the grown-ups around them or the children around them yeah. who can do a thing. And their body gives them a sense or your body gives you a sense of what it would feel like to do that thing. Yeah. And your mirror neurons are what give you that. And if you can, if you can pay attention to that feeling and even give it a name, yeah. it, it makes it much, much easier just to copy what somebody else is doing. Because the bit of your brain that handles language is not the bit of your brain that handles movement. Yeah, I think so. And I think exactly the same is true through with craft things. Absolutely. If you're trying to teach somebody to sew or a friend of mine is a leather worker and, you know, and there are just some people who know how to watch, how to take notice, how Mm -hmm. to how to respond <laughs> to yeah. what is coming in. And others who are just completely oblivious to anything that's going on and making, it's exactly the same thing, making that leap between the two. Really difficult for some people. Yeah, well, I used to be very, very verbal. I wanted verbal and intellectual instruction. I needed to understand mm. it intellectually before I thought I could do it. Uh, and that's sort of how I was programmed it's I guess brought, it is how we're all brought up that's what the modern education right. system tells us right but um eventually I kind of figured out that I didn't actually need all of that kind of intellectual crud <laughs> blocking up my brain and, <laughs> and stop and stop me from actually being able to do it like you know again and again with woodwork you have 
to know what a well-set plane is like, you pick one up that somebody who knows what they're doing has set. They've sharpened it and they set it and it's working just as it should. And you run it across a piece of wood and you go, oh my God, that's what it's supposed to feel like. And then you take your plane and you fiddle with it until it feels like that. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. because the, the changes we're talking about are such tiny little nuances. Yeah. You can't possibly, you can't, you can't write them down as a set of instructions Agreed. because, you know, and, and every plane is different. So you, you make different adjustments to each, yeah. you know, to get the same end result. Yeah. Um, Oh, well, I was not expecting to geek out about, <laughs> about woodworking planes today. Not at all. Okay, now. I think it's really, it, another thing that's really come to me that's interesting, it's sort of related to this, is my mm-hmm. daughter obviously has been brought up as a reenactor all her life, poor thing. She had no choice in the matter. <laughs> but one of the things that she got really, really enthusiastic about when she was eight years old was a, a technique of braid making. You know, mm-hmm. loads of eight-year-old girls get into friendship braids or whatever. But for sure. her, it was a 16th century technique. Um, and uh, we were, my husband and I were working, started working at uh, the Globe Theatre in London at that point. And, mm-hmm. you know, she just came with us. Um, and the designer there got very excited when she saw the braid that my daughter was making. She said, oh, my God. And I said, oh, yeah, it's a 16th century type of braid. And she commissioned my eight-year-old, or she was just about to turn nine, <laughs> daughter <laughs> to make to, to make commercially, professionally for the Globe Theatre. So she did. Wow. <laughs> at nine years old. Child um, labour? Well, that's historical. I know child labour. It was, <laughs> but I mean, you can imagine how enthused that made a nine-year-old. Um, oh, sure. Just like this became a real thing for her, and she just kept doing it. And she's, you know, she is so expert. What I wanted to say was how different it was. It is. It, it's changed her hands. Sure. What she can do with her hands is utterly different from I've ever seen any other adult. Even somebody who's also keen on that craft, because she molded her hands to fit the craft from a child when they were still malleable so in a sense that's just like dance training you know if you're somebody you know i did ballet classes that changes your body um, because you're using it in different way your bones structure is actually different you lay down different bone you lay down different muscle and she's the same with her hands and arms she's she can do things that are just considered impossible these days and yet it's clear that if you train from a child it's possible it's like violin playing isn't it yeah, Learn young. and, and uh, yeah, they say uh, the the skeletons of the archers on the Mary Rose are identifiable because they have a twist in the spine from the yeah the, the archery, um, which I'm not suggesting that's a healthy thing. No, we probably don't want that. <laughs> but yeah, certainly, certainly, what what we do leaves a mark on the body. Absolutely, um, and and I think you know it's all part of a a lost world really of physical training. Um, that you're talking about and I'm talking about. It it does survive in certain areas of modern life, such as learning to play the violin or, you know, Mm -hmm. there are areas in which we train like that and have attention drawn to the physical by outsiders helping us to to, to nurture and build those sorts of skills. But it's unusual. It's not the mainstream way of learning anymore. Yeah, it's all sitting in nice straight rows in school, which does not make sense to me at all. Um, okay, now now your your book, How to Be a Tutor, is actually the first of your books I got into, um, okay. and it is it's a really thorough investigation of what it what it is like to kind of wake up as a tutor person and live the day and then go to bed that night, and it covers so many different aspects of life in the Tudor period, um, and you sort of skip over the swords a little bit. <laughs> 
And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote your own words to you, which is a terrible <laughs> okay. thing to do to a writer. Right, I do apologise. But the use of weaponry does not appeal to me in the same way as, say, the making of cheese. It's okay. true. <laughs> and and that's, that's perfectly fair. And you, you sort of redress the balance a little bit in a chapter in How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England. Um where you talk about some of the Elizabethan sword fighting stuff, which is which is good. It's ni- nice that the sword makes a little bit of an inroad there. Um, but I thought I should I should probably flag up to the listeners that you're you're not a you're you're a living historian and yeah. and a and a recreator of historical skills. Yes. But but not specifically a sword person. Correct. That's, perf- that's perfectly okay. Uh, you know, we we we, we still I like people who are much like more swordy than me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, but but you know, you you've recreated such an extraordinary range of different uh, historical skills. So, do you have any suggestions for how we sword people could extract training practices from historical sources? Oh, my goodness. That's a difficult question, isn't it? Well, I, I wouldn't waste your time with anything easy. <laughs> I, well, I think what I've really found is that um, breadth is really quite helpful. Mm-hmm. It's very, very easy to, to send yourself down a rabbit hole. We all do it. You know, you, you, you sort of focus on a particular thing and not realise that something way over to the right or to the left or upside down or somewhere else, somewhere that seems unconnected, in fact, has a big influence. Um, sure. And I think many people, it, 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 you know, we all have our blind spots. We can't help it. But it's really quite useful sometimes to try and pull focus and to try and get a bit more context and wider and to be open to the fact that other things might be feeding in that seem unrelated and I find that all the time with what I'm doing, that by having a period, of, a period of interest, a moment in time that I'm interested in going sideways across it, rather than drilling down on one sort of subject vertically, I think I pick up more of that sort of cross-current, um, and I think it's useful. I don't think very many people do it, but I think it's useful. Well, in case you're wondering where I stand on that, I did invite you onto this show, even though you don't do swords at all. <laughs> so, so, yeah yeah so, so 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 you're you're to me personally you're preaching to the converted but the um i'm i have i know very very many historical sword people who know all about um the very specific narrow um this exact style of this exact sword from this exact period and that's all they're interested in. They're not interested in the clothing. They're not interested in the food. They're not interested in the dance. They're not interested in the social hierarchies that these people yeah. were doing their sword stuff I in. Think, I don't see how you can be interested in the sword and not be interested in the clothes people are wearing to do the swordsmanship in. Because it completely oh, I totally changes can. the way you move. Well, yeah, okay. Um, it, it does change the way you move, absolutely. And I'm very much of the opinion that every historical uh, swordsmanship interpretation needs to be tested in the clothing of the period. Yeah, right, and so real clothing of the period, because there's so much people pay lip service to this all the time and dress in theatrical mock-up. Right, um, And that teaches you nothing, absolutely yeah. nothing. I, too, can wander around in a spangly suit. Great. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just give you a specific example, right? Um, like lycra sort of tights, sort of simulating medieval hose. Yeah, pointless. Basically, right. Well, I mean, they're fine if that's what you like to wear, but as a from a reconstructive standpoint, they don't behave the same because no. they're not they're not literally tied to your jacket with pieces of string. Exactly, 
and the seams come in different places. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, for sword, you know, you need to know where the armpit seam comes if you're going to be using a sword. You need to know how that feels, how much it digs in, how much it doesn't, how much it restricts, how much you can move. Because a lot of those early cut, tight cut doublets are really, really precise in where they allow you to put your shoulder right. joint. Yeah, uh, actually, you'll be pleased to hear that the very first guest on this show, Jessica Findlay, uh, who is a, she does medieval longsword stuff. Okay. And she's also made quite a lot of historical clothing. And she, she went off on a little rant about medieval shoulder design and clothing. <laughs> she absolutely did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, like the, modern, the modern jacket does not work for medieval swordsmanship at all because it doesn't allow you to move your shoulders in the way that a properly yeah. cut medieval uh, gambeson would do right exactly. which, which will allow you to do you know pull-ups and and you know yeah. cartwheels and what have you because yeah. it's designed to let you move it's one of the things we used to really work with with the globe theater on um mm-hmm. you know actors would start rehearsals and they'd have all these ideas about the sort of way they were going to move on stage and say no 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 You've got to, <laughs> you can't do any of that. That's all the wrong sorts of shapes. These are the sorts of shapes you need to be making with your body. Right. And it's not just in swordman, obviously, but how you sit on a chair, how you yeah. walk across the stage, how you take your hat off, etc. And until you get the accurate clothing on and you start to practice in that accurate clothing so it becomes like a second skin and you're not always second guessing it, then, then you sort of see the changes. And, and it's really noticeable how somebody goes from looking awkward and strange and as if they're pretending into somebody who looks real, um, yeah. and and well, it's a language. It is the way you, the, what what you wear is a language, but also how you move is, is a language, and it's very culturally learned. And I get exactly. I find that very exciting too. You mentioned too about learning to walk from watching people. That's exactly it. So each of us culturally moves according to the culture that we sit within or the culture that we want to sit within we often ape other people who are cooler or or fashionable or whatever you know and therefore fashions in movement happen very quickly and they sweep through the population very quickly and they differentiate different social groups and as soon as you're somebody who looks at movement you see it everywhere don't you i i I play cafe game i guess where people have been brought up according to how they walk past on the street (laughs) (laughs) that's we we should play that game sometime i I wonder i wonder how will i do i've never actually played that consciously in terms of location because it really makes you look no i i look at um when i look at somebody moving i'm thinking what stuff have they practiced yes which of course so is part of it yeah yeah so like uh, that that person is definitely a wrestler that person looks moves like a boxer that person moves like a desk jockey who has never done any physical activity yeah. in their life yeah. you know and Sikh you can, gentlemen you can have a marvelous walk oh I, I really like to see a Sikh gentleman walk down the street <laughs> <laughs> so <Yeah>. instinctive <laughs> yeah and it's, it's funny you know there's there's a common sort of idea that there is one correct way mechanically biologically correct way to walk or to stand or to move yeah, it's and it's rubbish, just not true it? yeah I, I mean there are there are certain types of movement that are definitely bad for you but within the in, within the range of movement that is not bad for you there's lots and lots of correct ways to walk across the room or pick up a box or whatever yeah i'm in full agreement with you there okay uh, well, agreement doesn't lead to good conversations. So let's see if we can find something to argue about. Yeah, okay. okay um, all right. Okay. So one of the things about historical swordsmanship, which is 
which is great, is we can test our interpretations. So, you know, if I have this idea about how this particular technique works, we can set it up and see if it actually works against someone who's trying to stop you from doing it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, if you're doing medieval cookery, you get a similar kind of feedback. If, if it comes out of the oven, like burnt to a crisp, clearly something went wrong. Yeah. Um, so how do you handle the problem of incomplete information when it comes to things oh, like recreating dance or whatever? It's so difficult, isn't it? Yes. There are so many options. I think, I think my real feeling is not to be quick to jump to conclusions. And I think that even when there's good evidence, it's very easy to think you know the answer. Um, and to just sort of skip over that bit. Um, and you see people do it a lot, and I think it gives what we do a bad name uh, in academic circles, because it happens so often. Sure. Um, people make dreadful assumptions, um, and you know they don't really test it out properly. They say they've tested it, but they've only tested it out in certain ways. The hard thing is getting your mind in the right place, I think, um, trying to find out what it is you've taken for granted. Because we none of us know, because we take it for granted. Trying to right. unpick your modern attitudes and your modern opinions and somehow take them out of the equation. It's really hard and you have to be super vigilant because they just creep in all the time. Um, and you've got to sort of get really good at spotting, oh, now is that just because I think it should work like that? You know, how, how, how rigorous have I been here? You just have to keep coming back at yourself and going, am I sure? Have I, have I got this, you know, am I up my own arse, basically? Um, <laughs> it, it's just, it's such a tricky thing. All history involves it. Sure. Whenever you read a passage, you are busily interpreting it in the light of other things that you've read and other things that you've heard and the modern world that you live in and trying to strip that out. Even just reading something really simple about traditional, I don't know, kings and queens is difficult. But when you're dealing with something as physical and personal as the way somebody moves or how something feels to eat, then it's even harder because we all have laid over the top this vast body of modern experience. How do you strip that away? I think you just have to be super vigilant. Right, yes. Um, and you know, finding feedback mechanisms yes, where possible. Where possible. And cross-corroboration. So, and you've got to be really quite wide-ranging in the sorts of corroboration you're willing to take, particularly where there's a lack of evidence. So, you know, I mean, there isn't, for example, a 16th century treatise on how to skin a rabbit. <laughs> no, you just cut it off. <laughs> there just isn't. Uh, so how do you yeah. do it? Well, I mean, the obvious thing to do is to go and talk to lots of people who skin rabbits. But you can't just say, right, well, this was, must have been the way they did it. Because no. actually, when you start talking to a wide range of people who modernly skin rabbits, they don't all do it the same way. Are you saying there's more than one way to skin there's a rabbit? There's more than one way to skin a rabbit. It turns out there's loads of ways to skin a rabbit. And sure. initially you think, oh, well, they must have used all of these ways. But in modern world, you see that there are traditions in different areas of the world yeah. as to how to skin a rabbit. So how do you then say, well, which tradition did we use? Really? Difficult. Right. Yeah, you know, and I've interviewed a, a swordsmith on this show called Craig Johnson, who's done a lot of work you know, with historical weapons and recreating mm. them using you know, blacksmithing techniques and what have you. And you know, he, I remember, I don't think it was part of the interview, but ages ago when we were in the States and he showed me a nail head on a training rapier. Yeah. And he explained how he'd done it. And it took about three seconds. And the hammer marks were in just the same place as they were on the original. And it was like, 
you know, he'd been working on how, how to do it for ages and ages and ages. And then suddenly he just, his hands just did it for him. Yeah. And it was like, boom, they're suddenly sitting there is this perfect reproduction. Yeah. And there's no way to prove that that's how they did it. No. But it was quick, it was efficient, and it leaves exactly the same hammer marks. Yeah. So. That, yeah, you know. absolutely. And I'd say, I think the first time I managed that was with a doublet that in where the creasing and grease marks um, after a certain amount of wear were exactly the same as an original. Right. You could, like the way it had moved on the body. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, you're getting somewhere. Close. <laughs> close. <laughs> okay, so uh, obviously, anything living history, you know, swordsmanship included, involves lots of kit, lots of yes. equipment. Um, so I imagine that your house is completely filled with <laughs> um, historical reenactment stuff. Am I correct? Uh, well, over the years, I've become, I've banished it. <laughs> okay. Bit more separation than they used to be, but that's mostly put a bigger house these days, so it's impossible. Um, well, yeah, okay. I, I remember I, I had this problem of, of uh, I had too many swords, I couldn't hang them all up, and I had too yeah. many books, I didn't have enough book space. So, yeah. do you know what I did? I got Storage. a bigger house, bigger, bigger house. house, exactly. That's exactly yeah. it. With an enormous that's the solution, yeah. We got a double garage, which of course is full to the brim, and yeah, we got a van that sits on the drive completely full. It's a mobile shed, it's an occasionally mobile <laughs> shed. And then friends and colleagues obviously have got more stashed in there, yeah. <laughs> various cellars, garages, whatever. Yeah, kit. Okay, everywhere. now you know, swords are like symbolic objects. Okay, so is there any particular item in your collection of living history gear that sort of symbolises the practice of living history for you? Cauldrons. Everybody eats. Cauldrons. Okay, <laughs> tell, me, tell, tell me about cauldrons. I don't know anything about cauldrons, except what I've read in your books. Oh, well, they're big and they're heavy. <laughs> but they are. They're the, they are the most basic piece of equipment. Um, to be honest, you know, you... People often talk about blades as being one of the, the base technologies of all human culture, and obviously yeah. they are. Um, so are so is string, mm -hmm. um, and I think that gets grossly underrepresented, and so is a pot. And obviously the earliest ones are, you know, clay or upturned mm -hmm. brain pans, probably from skulls, God knows what. Um, but as soon as you've got a pot, you've got a whole range of new options available. I mean, it can carry liquid for drinking. It can carry, you know, it, it's sort of like yeah. one of the most basic survival things. And when you look at the things that people owned in the past, a pot is the, is the thing that makes the difference between having a home and not having a home. A pot is the thing you're willing to lug about when you can't bear anything else because it makes survival so much easier. You can eat in a different way. You can eat different foods if you've got a pot. You have access to all the grains and things. You don't have to wait for somebody else to hand you a piece of bread. If you've got a pot, you can make a meal out of, you know, almost anything. And mm -hmm. that sort of flexibility. So I think, I think of it, I think pots in their general are deeply symbolic. They are half Clearly. of home. Um, and I think... They are the central to a way of life, to a, to a settled way of life. Okay. Is there a particular cauldron in your collection that you're I, fond of? Oh, I love them. I've got, I've got several reproductions, which are lovely, which are yeah. lovely, but I have also got a few originals. I don't 
as a normal thing, I don't collect originals because sure. I could. Because you I can't could. use and you I can't could, use them. You can't. I, I would not be looking after them properly. They should be in museums. They should not be sitting in my house. Right. I, I, yeah. I don't really approve of private collections. Um, but I have got, I have got a couple of little cauldrons, and they're so beautiful. I mean, they have such organic shapes as well, particularly the slightly sagged ones, the bronze sag bottoms. Um, and, you know, you know, they've been used and used and used and used. You know that more hands have been on them than you could shake a stick at. Um, they're just beautiful. Could you send me a picture of one of them for the show notes? I could try. So I'm, I'm sure people would like to see it. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no promises, but if you go to the show notes, you may well find a picture of one of these beautiful cauldrons that Ruth is talking about. I have never, ever heard anybody talk so passionately about a pot before. That's great. <laughs> That's because we take them for granted. They're so basic. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and with all these basics, it's, it's when, when they're taken away, you understand yeah. exactly oh. how important they were. <laughs> yeah, just imagine life if you had no pots, even in your modern life. Imagine if you could never have anything that had been cooked in a pot. That would just, yeah, <laughs> wouldn't work. I mean, you know, grilled is all very well, but. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I have a couple of questions that I, I tend to sort of wrap up with. And mm-hmm. the first is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Uh, rule the world, obviously. Well, obviously. Yeah. Make, make us all wash our clothes in wood ash. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Do away with public schools. Give everybody a shed. That would be, you see, if I was ruling the world, that would be my mon- number one policy. After seven yeah. years in any relationship, you would automatically get delivered a shed to you. <laughs> see, that's, that's brilliant. I think it would cut the divorce rate in half overnight. It would improve family relationships, and that, of course, would improve the mental health of the nation. It would improve the physical health of the nation. We'd spend less on the NHS. We'd all just be a happier, healthier people if we all had a shed. Well, let me tell you something about sheds. Um, When we moved to this house a couple of years ago, one of the selling points was at the foot of the garden, there's this beautiful, quite big shed that I have insulated and kitted out with heater and dehumidifier, and it's my woodworking shop. And through lockdown, I have spent, I don't know <laughs> how many hundreds of hours in my shed. I go there pretty much every day, right? And it's awesome. And to the point, um, very soon, well, it's been delayed by Brexit and other things like coronavirus and what have you, but my wife is also getting an enormous shed. She's a Pilates, <laughs> she's a Pilates teacher. And so, so we're moving all of her Pilates stuff out of the house and into this it, very large shed for her Pilates stuff. So we, yeah. I am 100% on board with your shed idea. <laughs> so your, your best idea you've never acted on is give everybody a shed. Yeah. That's a really good idea. <laughs> that is not at I all what I, I was expecting. No, yeah. I, I wish I could. <laughs> I think Britain would be a much better place if we all had a shed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and Britain is like the promised land of sheds, isn't it? It is really, yeah. Um, so... so uh, are you working on any new books? Is there, is there another oh, book not coming? Not really. I've got a bit of a hiatus. Um, okay. Having a bit of a rest after the well, domestic revolution. Yes. Yes. I see the book I want. And also you have to be able to persuade a publisher, don't you? And that's no, not always I'm my own so publisher. Easy. Oh, well done for you. It's so, yeah, I don't have to persuade anybody. I can write whatever I want. And as long as my students buy it, I'm all right. You're all right. <laughs> I want, you see, it's not your, it won't be up your street at all, probably. I want to write a history of housework. 
why would that not be up my street? I mean, I've literally just spent like the last 45 minutes interviewing you about like washing clothes and stuff. So. Yeah, well, that's true, actually. You have, haven't you? See, I yeah. think, again, it's really fascinating and um, it's something that people don't normally talk about. So there's all this sure. information out there that nobody's bothered to look at, nobody's really thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, what counts as housework has changed you know, over Absolutely. and over and over and over again throughout the centuries. And the way we do it has changed over and over and over again throughout mm-hmm. the centuries. It's really, quite, it's very political. Oh, God, is it political? I mean, yeah. you know, any conversation you try and have about housework, particularly with your own partner. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have conversations with my wife about housework. She says, Guy, do this. I say, yes, ma'am. And that's that. <laughs> OK. So you're following the traditional pattern in which she takes all the responsibility and you are absolved of it. Um, no, no, I no? don't think that's strictly fair. No? no, it's just, it's just that when it, like, okay, when she goes away to, you know, as before lockdown, like she would go off to, to a Pilates seminar or something for the weekend and she'd come back and the children would be like happy and fed and whatever. And the bins would be empty and the laundry basket would be empty and the oh, fridge I'm would impressed. be full. So, so, I'm you know, impressed. but, I am but impressed. I, did your mum make you do that when you were a kid? No, we lived in Africa and Peru and we had maids. Oh, how interesting. Um, yeah, that is but, really interesting because when I talk to people, it's really, really noticeable how much continuity there is between what children are asked to do by their p- parents, particularly mm-hmm. boys. If a boy is asked to do certain things by his mother, he will almost always do those things as an adult in his own home. Huh. If she doesn't ask him to do anything, he does pretty much the same when he gets married. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a remarkably stable pattern, so you're unusual then. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't actually really thought about it in any sort of depth. No, people um, don't generally. Um, I mean, it's it's fair to say that, that my wife sort of does most of the house stuff. Um, that is just true. Um, and that's largely been because I've mostly been doing most of the kind of going out and making a living stuff. Mm. But that's never been deliberate. You know, it's just it's just a kind of, you know, how things have worked out with the way her work has gone and the way my mm. job is going and that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's really interesting, and I think yeah. you know, the sort of the way we think about it is is obviously changing constantly. Yeah, um, and attitudes change constantly, and they're not always quite as clear cut as people want. You know, I saw talk people say, "Oh, yeah, but men never did any of that in the past." That turns out That's to be crap. really not true. Really, totally not true. Really not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. As soon as you start looking for the evidence, you've got a much more complicated, intricate pattern of changes as to who's right. responsible for this and who's responsible for that. You know, a much more involvement across the sexes. The only real period of history in which you get men being able to sort of, well, choosing to largely opt out of that is a really short window in the early 20th century. Um, okay. And yet everybody claims that that pattern is the pattern of history. It's not. Right. It's really not. Well, it's the pattern of recent living history, uh, uh, so within living memory history. Yeah, so, it is. That's so it. That's, and, and the people so that's how I must always have that. Been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the thinking. People push that back onto a, an older past. And, and, actually, and the, the, the reality is, is very varied and, you know, surprising so, in many ways. Yeah, yeah and, and the idea that women didn't work Oh yeah, before. it's like horseshit. It's like no, they just didn't, they just tended not to have the um, the posh jobs that got recorded and talked about exactly. In books. <laughs> but yeah, they were <laughs> they were like spinning and 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 weaving and making stuff and you know all Carrying sorts of things. Carrying bricks like, and <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. As soon as you like, I've just done a, a little research project for Ironbridge Museum and all, okay. all about the women working in industry in the nineteenth century, and that's been right. very interesting. They're yeah. all in factories, exactly. Yeah, They're working yeah. in factories and doing all, all of that. Huge stuff. amount yeah. of labouring. I mean, that's yeah. it takes people a huge amount of women who are digging, lifting, and shifting. Yes, um, you know, which we now think of as as male occupations, but until about eighteen sixty, and there's a mm-hmm. real turning point then. Uh, until about 1860, you're in some ways more likely to find the lifting, shifting being done by women. Really? That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Okay, you have to write that book for me, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> well, not for me, but, you know. Yeah. I, uh, the past is interesting, isn't it? It can't get yeah, very much skin. so. Yeah, and do you know what? It reminds me a lot of what we've been talking about. Uh, it's sort of bringing up memories from when I was living in Peru, for instance, and uh, up in the mountains, the peasant women kind of wandering around doing their thing and uh, they would almost always be spinning all the time as they were walking and talking. So something that would take me, I don't know, two hours to kind of fiddle about with and, and, yeah. and get wrong, they are doing sort of unconsciously as they walk and chat to their friends and go shopping and do all the necessary things. It's just like they're also producing this yarn that they're then going to weave into cloth and make clothes out of and things like that. And, like you know, living in Africa, we saw people cooking on wood fires using cauldrons. Yeah. And that wasn't that wasn't some sort of, you know, tourist thing. That's no, no, that's what you do. What they were actually doing. That's yeah. how they do it. So I have you visited Africa? I haven't. I'm very sad to say. I think I think you might find if you go to the right parts, you might see some really interesting things that remind I've you very wanted, much of I've your always research. wanted to do some sort of anthropological um, sort of thing that studies that, well, exactly that. I've always wanted to do an anthropological project because I think the past is anthropology. Um, sure. And it would be really nice to have a bit more comparison with yeah. you know, things that you can see in action nowadays in different places. My, one of my brothers spent six months in Africa and, and uh, like me, he has quite a practical background and uh, was brought up with fires. Our parents were both scout leaders. Ah, um, right. <laughs> that would help. Uh, that would help. <laughs> And uh, ovens is, is also a thing that he's really keen on. So he spent six months in Africa building ovens out of whatever it was for various oh, people. Oh, wow. That's really cool. <laughs> out in sort of some of it, yeah. Cool. Okay. My last question. Okay. Um, somebody grants you a big chest of gold to spend on improving historical education <laughs> and practice of living history. Okay. How would you spend it? Oh, how would I spend it? I might more go and build fires, basically. Okay. <laughs> I think, I, you know, I mean, I really... The problem with that woodland school idea is it's awfully wrapped up in middle-classness. Yes. And, um, and that makes it really off-putting, and I think for many people. And I think that's a real shame, because I actually... Scouting often sometimes suffers from the same problem. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't know how one would go around subverting that. But I really, really, really think every child should have time out in the woods, building fires, making a mess, digging holes, getting dirty, getting splinters, you know, <laughs> hitting things with yeah. a stick, uh, you know, having small burns, having a physical right. interaction with the world that isn't pressured, isn't heavily supervised, yeah. you know, isn't got goals that have to be ticked off on a ruddy tick list. Um, yeah. I was really lucky to get that as a kid. I did get it, and I made sure I passed it on to mine. Um, but I know that that sort of an education is really rare. Um, 
But I think it gives you a grounding that the rest of life can then balance against. Sure. Um, and I think it makes you understand people in other parts of the world better. And I think it makes you understand people in the past better. Because it's something that we share. That very physical, practical humanness is universal. It's the modern living that isn't. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I used to live in Finland. And they are big on their forests and that sort of thing there. And you know, one friend of mine who has kids, um, her eldest was very independent-minded. So they got her this little kind of panic button, basically, that they should strap on her wrist. So she could just go off into the forest for like a day with a no bag with a sandwich in it and so if she like i don't know if she if she fell out a tree or something and hit the panic she could hit the panic button and someone would come and find her yeah right that's a really good idea but it was but it was she was at the age of five she was on her own yeah in the forest just you know having adventures with imaginary animals or whatever it was a five-year-old does in the forest and i've seen another friend of mine who he does quite a lot of living history and his son when he was three years old was chopping firewood with sort of splitting kindling with an axe yeah at the age no, of three. it doesn't surprise me because right. it really doesn't children are much more capable physically than we ever give them credit for right. and likewise my daughter somebody gave say we've been reenacting since birth and when she was 18 months old <laughs> yeah a friend gave her a small sharp knife well good <laughs> it's a wear on a scabbard you see yeah, like like absolutely. all grown-ups do everybody has a sharp Perfect. knife so she has that's right and in I must admit, I probably would have waited another six months. Um, yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> two, yeah, okay. Yeah, me but too. But it was actually really good because, you know, obviously we all were aware she had a sharp knife on her belt. Mm -hmm. And so we sat her down and we talked with it and we did it together. And, you know, it was a big right. deal. It's the sharp. Everybody talked about the knife. Everybody looked at it as she did it. And, of course, she had no strength because she yeah. was little. So, yes, she didn't have much control, so it did waver a bit about all over the place. But when it did, the cuts she made were tiny, little yeah. tiny nicks. She never did any damage. And boy, did she learn fast how to respect a knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I... You know, I, by the time yeah. she was three or four, I could put her to chopping carrots. Yeah, my, my kids too. I, I started them out with, you know, I, I, I'm a blades person. So, obviously, in the, the whole point for me of, like, kitchens is the knives... And so I have nice kitchen knives and they are pretty sharp. And, you know, I've taught the kids, like when they were really little, they would put one arm around my waist and I would hold the carrot or whatever it is. And then they would hold the knife and I'd have my hand on top of their hand just to make sure nothing really yeah. bad happened. And they would chop this way. And the only person who could get cut was me. Yes. And, you know, they, they got the hang of it. And then after a while, they had their hand on the carrot and I had my hand on top. And then I took my hands away and... Yeah. yeah. By the time they were like three or four or whatever, they yeah, were, they're they perfectly were safe chopping, chopping carrots. carrots. And, yeah, and I like was we had no trouble with fires. Again, she grew up right. around fires. Um, sure. Never, never any bother. Yeah, I, I, I think skill keeps you safe better than ignorance. Yes, I do too. I really yeah. do, and understanding. Okay, so you would you would have this, you would use this money to basically create like. I don't want to say forest school. Should we say yeah, forest experience? School, yeah, forest possibly. experience. Forest time. Forest time. adventures. Yeah, adventures and time. Without too okay. many bloody interfering adults. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's really changed in my lifetime. And, and you know, you and yeah. I are probably of a similar generation. 
the amount of supervision children are, are, are under nowadays just shocks me. Shocks yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, we, we, I try not to you know, impose that on my kids. It is, I mean, you know, as a sword person, many of your listeners, I imagine, are reenactory types. And I think it's one of I the bet. great things that reenactment as a hobby offers. It allows you to do a little bit more free-range child rearing and have yes. people more sort of village-raised children. You, you know, because you're with a group of people that you sort of know that the child is dressed strangely so they can't wander off too far <laughs> because yeah. somebody will notice. You can afford to be a bit, there's more eyes keeping a lookout. You can afford to be more relaxed with the way you care and give them that space and give them that freedom yeah. and allow them to pick and choose who they want to talk to. Right. And, and what they want to do. Uh, yeah. 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 And, I, I, you know, I really valued it as a parent. I just thought this is a really nice way to bring up your kids. Um, and, you know, the fact that it's not all the time that you can intersperse it, like you can have the sort of more conventional modern life during the week, you go away at the weekend, you have this, mm-hmm. I suppose, quite hippie life in a way. But it means they've got both sides of the coin, doesn't it? It means the kid's got yeah. all these options to choose from later right. in life, more experiences to draw on. Yeah, and they can make informed decisions rather than just going with what, yeah. you know, the, the narrow range of what they otherwise grew up with. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. This isn't been about much about swords at all, is it? It's been about no, general no. philosophy of life. But well, exactly. But, but okay. But but let's 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 be practical for a second. I mean, who who needs to know how to use a sword properly? Oh, everybody, surely. In the twenty, well, no, in, no, in the twenty first century. True. In pretty much, it's people like me who who teach it for a living, we yeah. need to know how to do it. Yeah. But other than that, really, no one else needs. No. Needs it it. You don't do it because you, you it? do it because it's because it it brings you alive. It it, it yeah. wakes you up. It's it's you know for yeah. for us sword people there is no way to explain it because it's obvious. Yeah. And you know, and you know we talk about swords the way you talk about fire. <laughs> <laughs> swords are beautiful. I'm willing to accept that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm... I think I think that is a perfect place to finish on. <laughs> Oh, great. Well, thank thank you very much for joining me today, Ruth. It's been a delight. You're welcome. I hope some of it's useful. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ruth. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Erin Fitzgerald, who is a historical martial arts practitioner, a graphic artist, and she has a really unusual day job which we get into in great detail. It involves tinfoil, plaster of Paris, and bones. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. (laughs) 